You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful and lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so, so excited to welcome S.J. Sindhu to talk about her new hybrid collection of essays and poetry, Dominant Genes. S.J. Sindhu is a Tamil diaspora author of two literary novels, two hybrid chapbooks, and a forthcoming graphic novel. Her first novel, Marriage of a Thousand Lies, won the Publishing Triangle Edmund White Award and was a Stonewall Honor Book and a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award. Sindhu's second novel, Blue Skin God, was published in November 2021 by Soho Press, and her graphic novel, Shakti, is a forthcoming from HarperCollins. Sindhu's hybrid fiction and nonfiction chapbook, I Once Met You But You Were Dead, won the Turnbuckle Chapbook Contest and was published by Split Lip Press. A 2013 Lambda Literary Fellow, Sindhu holds an MA in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a PhD in English and Creative Writing, from Florida State University. So do it's so happy. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so, so super excited. Um, Thank you so much. No problem, no problem. Florida grads, Florida State grads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Florida State grads in the house. Oh my God, no, this is, I'm so honored to have you on. Uh, you are uh, an author I love. For all my local <laughs> skylight, you might've seen, um, uh, it's Sindhu's book, Marriage of a Thousand Lies, on our uh, staff picks uh, list recently, and I wonder who put it on there. I'm not saying it was me, but I'm <laughs> saying that everyone should read this book. It's fantastic, and no, I'm just such a huge fan. Thank you so much. No Thank problem. you for having me. No, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Um, Sindhu, I will have so much more time where I will just be just gushing all over your work. Um, and that was sounding more inappropriate than I meant it to sound. I meant it in a... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'll be just crying about how much I love all your work. Um, but before that, you have a reading for us today? I do. I'm going to read the title poem from Dominant Jeans. Ooh, so excited. All right, take it away. From the wombs of true believers, I came out faithless, a godless, decadent heathen. But somewhere in my foggy ancestral memory, I recall that women used to worship snakes. We'd put out milk for cobras, hoping they'd leave the baby in the crib alone. And if they drank from our offering, we were guaranteed good luck for a week. But that was long ago, before the Eve-hating white men came with injections of snake fear shot right into our pagan faith. Now when we see a cobra, we scream, and the neighbors run over with hoes and machetes. One time, when I was little, I saw one the size of my arm slithering on our veranda, and I got to scream, cobra, cobra, snake. They all came, men yelling to save me my grandfather wielding a kitchen knife and hacking the cobra to bits right there in our backyard garden. My mother's mother's mother lived to be 100, insisted on sleeping in her own house until the very end. But my mother is afraid of snakes. And as a child, tormenting her was a favorite pastime. I'd beg snake toys from relatives and chase her. I would twist snakes out of newspapers and old scarves. Watching my mother scream and run away, I laughed. I know now that it's a phobia that she had no control over her reaction. But back then her revulsion was a sign of weakness and I could feel like the strong one. I've always had a serpent tongue, though I learned early to silence its bite. This too is a gift from the women of my family. I can cut through a lover's blood during any fight. This is a liability, this ability to destroy a person. When I told my mother I wanted to be a writer, she said nothing. She didn't have to. We come from a country where writer means dead child. 
in Harry Potter, speaking serpent tongue meant you were evil, but I really think J.K. Rowling couldn't imagine herself out of her Christianity-addled brain. Like how Ray Bradbury could think up LED wall TVs, but not a world in which women had careers. My mother tells me to write nice stories, to keep my serpent tongue caged. This is her wisdom. In this new world, my ancestral power is to be feared. I'm young and I ignore her, but she still goes to sleep every night thinking, dead child, dead child, dead child. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. I mean, it, it gives it a new level to hear you say it too. Um, are you, have you done any like spoken word before? Because I feel like you have the presence of a spoken word um, poet or just a spoken word. Is there just like a spoken word reader? Thank you. I've never done spoken word, but I, I grew up going to a lot of spoken word competitions and, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of friends who do spoken word. So I, I can, yeah, I can definitely see how that has affected my sort of reading voice. I'm not saying you should, but I mean, I would, <laughs> I would love it. I would be there snapping my finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, Cindy, it's such a pleasure to have you on. I will, one of 80 billion times I'll say I'm a huge fan, um, but Dominant Jeans feels so special in your work. Um, especially, I mean, with all your work, it you are, it's so brave uh, to me to see someone talk about um, queerness and gender and, you know, the fluidity of both uh, so freely in the work and not in a westernized, you know, way in a very uh, immigrant diaspora context. Can you um, talk about like the journey to get to there for you? It was definitely a long journey and I made a decision very early on and I think you know at that time it wasn't a conscious decision Mm -hmm. because I was you know 18 or so and I made it Um, but I I decided that I was going to write what I wanted to write and Mm -hmm. um, you know whatever happens as a result of that whatever fallout happens Mm -hmm. was just going to happen and Mm -hmm. I think part of that was because at the time when I started writing seriously in college, I was also a queer rights activist and Mm -hmm. that had forged me in many ways um, to be, you know, and and I I wasn't out out to my family and Mm -hmm. I was out to everybody else, but not to my family at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was terrified, but I had this idea that I should not let that fear creep in even a little bit to my writing. Um, Mm. I didn't want my writing to be curtailed by fear of any kind. So Mm. I decided that, you know, I would be fearful on my own time, but when I was writing, Mm -hmm. I was going to be fearless, as as fearless Mm. as I could. Uh, So that's kind of been my approach since I was, you know, since I was starting out, since I was 18. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's worked well so far I mean after Marriage of a Thousand Lies came out I was really scared that you know I was going to face a lot of backlash from Mm -hmm. the South Asian community the diaspora community my family Um, instead you know I I had a lot of the community really was supportive at least like the second generation community uh, you know my generation of Mm -hmm. of, uh, diaspora writers and readers were very, very supportive. And my family just sort of ignored the book and pretended it wasn't there. So there, you know, I, I, my worst fears were never really realized. And I, and I just kept going with that approach since then. You make it sound so casual, but like, wow, what a, I mean, that the, the choices you made are just so powerful, you know, it's, it's, it's not nothing you said there like you made it sound so effortless but it's not it took it probably took a lot of effort and time and you know realization of yourself to do that and like so commendable to see that especially in your work 
um dominant genes seems like you know a, a revisit of a, a lot of that for you and a lot of emotions and it's I mean where the other work you know I feel like definitely I'm gonna guess comes from a lot of your past too this just seems more direct um can you uh tell us like how it was you know going that deep into yourself and exposing a lot of your own self through your writing there yeah it's I don't write a whole lot of nonfiction, <laughs> um mm. mostly because I, I like the sort of psychic distance that fiction provides, that I can take a mm -hmm. kernel of truth and a kernel of experience and turn it into something completely different, weave it mm -hmm. into a completely different story uh, and move it into something new. Mm -hmm. And with just that kernel inside, that's, that's me. Mm -hmm. um, with nonfiction, you don't have that distance. You don't have that protection. Yeah. Um, it's you, you bury yourself on the page and hope for the best and hope mm -hmm. that the reader understands. And so I, I don't do a lot of it, but when I do, it tends to be sort of fragmented and experimental and, mm -hmm. um, and lyric and, you know, uh, so that a lot of that is in this chat book. Um, mm. and I think it, you know, my first chapbook, I Once Met You But You Were Dead, was also like this, you know, just disparate things I had written over the course of five or so years that I then mm -hmm. collected and, and, you know, shaped. So, you know, shaping meaning like I had to put it in the right order. I had to take pieces out, put mm -hmm. pieces in. And, and, you know, it's not just everything I wrote in the last five years that's not right. fiction. Um, but and, and, but a similar thing happened with Dominant Genes where I realized that, um, you know, five years had sort of passed since I put together the last chapbook and I had all of this new material. Mm -hmm. And uh, my partner is a poet. So I went through my entire schooling not taking any poetry classes because I was kind of terrified of poetry. And then the pandemic hit and, you know, we, we were sort of rattling around in this apartment together and I was like, why don't you treat, teach me poetry? Just, you know, let's sit down every other day and you can lecture to me about poetry and we'll have these conversations. And I started to write poetry for the first time since I was a teenager. And it was, it was great. It was very freeing mm. um, to, to not have to sort of, you know, with novels, you have to sort of sit down and re-enter this world every mm. single day Mm -hmm. over and over and over for years and with poetry you could just sort of you know have a moment have an experience and then go have another experience with a different poem and like it was it was a really different uh writing process and mm -hmm. I really appreciated that um and so that's kind of how it all came together um I I realized that even though the form was different what I was writing about was very similar I was writing about you know matrilineal heritage and mm -hmm. what it means to inherit not just uh, physical traits but also psychological traits or mm -hmm. uh, trauma from your family or uh, you know intergenerational experiences like immigration from your family mm -hmm. um, and so this is a lot of it is about inheritance and I mean like especially for uh, diasporic communities especially first for this generation, like our generation too, uh, as I'm a first generation Jamaican, I feel like talking about inheritance is not a, it's not an easy topic. It's not a topic that like, I mean, I feel like for um, Amer a lot of American, um, like multiple generation uh, people, it's it's been talked about. Like you look at like, uh, dynasty or um shows like this is us or parenthood there that's there you see the inheritance in that show you see what's being you know built for them over generations where you know where it's new for us it's it's I mean we've have we have this you know other side of ourselves like far away from this country and then we have this everything we have here which is you know new it's feels like a lot is on our shoulders there too and the pressure of that is you know it's great no one knows and like I feel like um for a lot of people you know you blame family you blame uh 
you bl- you blame fam uh, the older generation who brought uh you here you blame circumstance you blame the country but like it's i mean the last one i don't know if that one's you know <laughs> not without blame but like the the family you know it's i feel like as of age you find you realize that they have their own faults and have have their own they they you're not you're you might have been in their situation and done similar things right and you have to understand them a little bit more I feel like um for me but like it's you know it's not easy (laughs) it's not yeah no that's a that's a really great point that you know that uh for families who have been in the U.S. or who have Mm -hmm. immigrated many many generations ago uh all of those generations have sort of built this inheritance for them and like first generation and second generation immigrants are figuring that out as you know right now in the immediate so Mm -hmm. there's there's a sense of urgency um i think for diaspora communities to to think about inheritance um in a way that didn't doesn't exist for many americans and maybe it does maybe it does in different ways um but but this existence of being in a liminal space like between mm-hmm. cultures uh mm-hmm. you know where where your family is is connected to something that you are in danger of losing yeah. right as as somebody who is assimilated or assimilating into mm-hmm. a different especially westernized culture you are in danger of losing your everything you've inherited so like mm-hmm. how do you how do you preserve that but also how do you build, you know how do you bring it into the future without yeah becoming really regressive mm-hmm. and i mean I, I i personally and i'm i'm saying all this after like you know your your writing has done a lot of making me reflect on it as well like i mean and i will talk about this book so much i am so sorry i apologize for now <laughs> and i know this is a book that has not come out recently but marriage of a thousand lies oh was so i mean important for me to like grow and understand my own family and my own you know choices because um for the listeners if you haven't read this book um I, why am i giving the summary would you like to give a summary a quick sure. summary of, Marriage of a thousand lives sure um it's about a, a woman named lucky she's a sri lankan american lesbian who's married to a gay man and she's pretending to be straight for her family um and she at some point she moves back home to her mother's house to take care of her grandmother who's fallen ill and she, you know, rekindles a relationship with her first love, who is engaged to be married. And it's Lucky's coming out story, very simply, but it's much more complicated than that, yeah. right? It's, it's right. asking questions of where allegiances lie when you have multiple marginalized identities that are intersecting yeah. and that are conflicting with each other. And I, I mean, I mean, uh, everything you say there, I'm like, I, because I, sell it all the time and I want I'm I'm like let me am I describing it wrong but you said like all the hit the hitting points that I love saying to people and I'm just like I got it right yes um and I mean that book made me realize you know they're like you want to live up to the sacrifice your older generation did for you there's so much like I feel like in um, let me know if you shared this too like you as a kid you watch all the sacrifices they made for you and like the consequences of those sacrifices and how hard it was and you know it just it was it's not easy to like move from another country and raise a family and you know feel mm-hmm. out of place in the community and I mean like I was just watching the show Pen15 and there was an episode where like the old the the kids are like making fun of their mother because of her accent not but like it's like that I mean I did that did I do that to my mother um probably I was a little shit as a kid but like (laughs) I mean it's that it's like you don't they they had that they that's something that like you know othered them from people Mm -hmm. that they were trying to make community with but then like I don't know you it's like you see all of that so you're like I have to make my own sacrifices for them to speak to like live up to their own sacrifices but how what is enough what is too much what is you sacrificing yourself to do that and that's what I mean I find that in a lot of your blue skin gods does that too in a very amazing way 
where like I um got that in like your own writing now I'm like in dominant <laughs> genes um I god I'm just I'm such a fan of all of these <laughs> works um but how but like in that way, do you did you feel a release in writing uh, dominant genes, especially? But even with uh, Blue Skin Gods and Marriage of a Thousand Lines, did you feel a release from your own worry about the sacrifices you've made? Um, yeah, I mean, most of it was just like me thinking through these issues and trying mm -hmm. to complicate them for myself. I think right. you know, marriage. I I came out of writing. Marriage of a Thousand Lies. Like it took five years to write. So at the end of the five years, I mean, I was also older uh, mm. than I was when yeah. I started writing it. But um, at the end of the five years, I felt like I understood my mother a lot better. And I, mm -hmm. and I felt like I had a lot more compassion for her than mm -hmm. I did when I first started writing it, when I had a lot of rage and, and anger. Yeah. Um, and, and, and over the last few years of writing, Blue Skin Gods and writing Dominant Genes, that's sort of been the theme is like trying to understand what my parents have gone through to, to make sure that me and my brother are safe and, um, you know, that we're, <laughs> that at, at a certain point, um, you know, when you do sacrifice that much for someone it, it, you can justify expecting a lot from them. You know, mm -hmm. I've always sort of uh, borne the weight of a lot of expectation from my family um, in terms of academics, in terms of success, in terms of like, you know, who I get married to in terms of everything. Um, but it makes sense that when, mm -hmm. you know, like not that, not that it's good and not that it's healthy, but it makes right. sense that uh, it makes a sort of brutal type of sense that you know the amount of sacrifice that has gone into their uh immigration and just there there's a sort of a piercing loneliness that mm -hmm. goes with immigration and displacement yeah. um being you know the outsider always and i think yes. it can really open your eyes to see your parents your immigrant parents in their I guess natural habitat in their <laughs> old home um, right. I will never forget when I visited Sri Lanka um, the once and only time I did since since moving uh, and and I heard my father speak a third language fluently that I didn't even know he knew mm -hmm. like I knew he know, knew like English and Tamil but he spoke Singhala, which is another language that's spoken in Sri Lanka, like mm -hmm. absolutely fluently. And I was just stunned. I had lived my entire life not knowing yeah. that he could even speak it. And uh, it, you know, it, it, it sort of brought home to me the fact that many immigrant kids don't know a lot about their parents and, and yeah. they've never sort of known their life before. Um, and, and, I think for every sacrifice we know about, there's probably many we don't. And I mean, the opposite could say could be said. The opposite, I feel like it's true too, because the you know we don't know. I feel like our their generation also doesn't. They can't also know us in a way. Yeah. They it's it's we're new to them. We're not mm -hmm. we're not the kids that were raised around. We were not, they can't be the parents, their parents were to them because, you know, this is, this is another culture. This is another, and like, it also, I mean, and I got this, I get this in your writing a lot. It make there's a sadness there. There's a sadness in the disconnect there. It's, there's a sadness in, I like to say a uh, sadness in the American dream of it all. Like it's, the American dream is such a positive, it sounds so positive. It sounds so like dreamy. It sounds like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but like, mm -hmm. it's so, there's a sadness in like losing so much. And like, even the way I was growing up in the culture, the rich culture that like, I, my family's culture, I loved it. I love um, the, the food, the music, the connection the community um mm -hmm. but like you know 
I'm, I'll never get it the way they did. And no one else will understand it. Who is not like a specifically in that community, like kids I was raised around will never understand that. The, I feel like, I feel like as a kid, you know, when I, when I would bring like Jamaican food to school, they would never, the kids would be like, what is that? And only recently, like the people now are like, oh, wow, other cultures, foods are good. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> duh, <laughs> like what? Like, oh my God. But like, yeah, and I, I, I feel that emotion in your writing in a way that I, you know, I think that's what drew me in um, and what draws a lot of, um, especially queer uh, first gen or immigrant, like our generation kids into your work. Um, but even, but another thing that I've been seeing is that I feel like culture is shifting in a way where kids who don't feel that are looking to understand, they're seeing that like, oh, wow, this community exists. These, especially white audiences are like, oh, wow, this whole queer community I never knew exists where it's not the, it's not the Love, Simon uh, conversation. It's not the um, L word what we're seeing there it's not one of the things I loved in Marriage of a Thousand Lies at the beginning was when people were like oh why don't you just come out to your uh family they'll understand or something like it was like around Mm -hmm. that idea and they were like what (laughs) do you not understand what like you don't why are you trying to comment on something from your experience onto mine and I feel like there it's starting to like really sink into culture that like there is a separation there and it's the other side's it's the other side's um responsibility to understand the 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 immigrant side um in your work i think helps a lot with that have you seen like that audience come to you or like come to your work in that way i think um you know having just between when Marriage of a Thousand Lies came out to when Blue Skinned Gods came out, the, mm-hmm. the audience had shifted, the cultural discourse, the conversation we were having had shifted, where, um, you know, selling Marriage of a Thousand Lies was really difficult because I kept getting rejections that were like, well, if this, if this book was either queer or South Asian, we would know how to sell it and who was going to mm-hmm. read it. But because it's both like who's who's gonna actually read this book queer mm-hmm. south asians like that's too some small of an audience was what i kept hearing um but that conversation had totally shifted by the time close in gods was you know was coming out where you know there was this i guess uh people had like tested it um i think the success like the massive success of um even movies like crazy rich asians Mm -hmm. or um uh black panther or Mm -hmm. any of the like sort of mainstream blockbusters and it's sad that it's the blockbusters that have to do it but it's true like it's the blockbuster movies that prove to the people making the decisions at the very top who are almost all white men that people of color or queer people uh can like can headline can can carry um a story and can attract white audiences and i think that was the initial concern and i think it's really good that uh white audiences are more and more interested in um uh, stories of people of color there's a certain like i'm afraid that it's a certain like voyeurism that is behind it. I think that's part of it is there's this aspect of voyeurism, but, um, but you have to start somewhere. <laughs> and, um, and it's at least good that, that uh, authors of color are being read um, much more widely than they were before, that yeah. their authors of color are no longer seen as a niche investment. They are seen mm-hmm. as a mainstream possibility. Yeah. Um, and really that's all you can ask for. Uh, culture doesn't change fast. And it's in small incremental changes. So at least that's something, you know, it's, it's important to know how much farther we need to go, but it's also important to celebrate the small successes we have. I mean, yeah. And how, and it's small, it's not as fast. It's small and should mm-hmm. be a lot faster. And 
better yeah. but yeah but in what you were saying I like how how did that make you feel though to like you know when you were selling marriage of a thousand lies and you were getting those rejections and then going like the whiplash of you know blue skin gods having a different effect how did you feel for that because I feel I feel like I'm I was over here you were telling me that I was like what how dare I like wanted to go like pitchfork and torch (laughs) over there but like how how did you feel to like you know not be under not have your work understood like that at the beginning but then the next one just total like maybe not total but like a 180 there it was uh, let's just say it was unexpected. I was mm-hmm. preparing myself for a very, very quiet book launch where, you know, Blue Skin Gods would come out and no one would mm-hmm. care, no one would stock it, <laughs> and that it would just sort of fade away. Um, mm-hmm. And it didn't even have, like, at least Marriage of a Thousand Lives was championed by queer readers. Uh, and I really think, you know, queer readers and South Asian readers were the ones who really, really got behind the book and the reason why the book even, you know, did marginally okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Blue Skin Gods, the queerness is much more subtle. Like it's there, but it's not the focus of the story. So I was also mm-hmm. afraid that, you know, queer audiences wouldn't champion the book or uh, wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that South Asian audiences might be pissed off that I was I was uh, atta- you know attacking religion and I was just afraid that um, that it would get lost in the shuffle and it was coming out you know we were, it was supposed to come out in June of 2021 mm-hmm. and um, you know which would make it a summer read right. but it came out it got pushed back because of the pandemic and mm-hmm. it was coming out in November and like. November, like October, November is when like the the big books come out, like the hard hitters, the big names. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I'm, I'm like trying to go up against all these people with really established careers because um, the timing of when your book comes out does matter. Right. Um, and and so I was I was scared about that, but um, but thankfully, like it was really you know, I, I think part of it was the indie booksellers really, you know, getting behind it. Um, that was that, I mean, that's the only reason why marriage did as well as it did, uh, was that it was sort of hand sold by a lot of indie bookstores, um, like Midtown Reader in Tallahassee. <laughs> I, 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 I know of several bookstores um, that hand sold the book and, and that mm-hmm. really made a difference. Um, and, and I think Blue Skin Gods is something similar that indie bookstores were stocking it and, and displaying it and putting it on their, um, on their tables instead of yeah. just like hidden in the stack. And that makes all the difference. I mean, Midtown Reader sold it to me. Uh, <laughs> they hand, so I'm a firsthand account of that. Um, and I might've hung around the Midtown Reader store on the weekends being like, you should read this book. Hey, and they'd be like, are you selling books for us? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And they were like, okay, <laughs> dude, go for it. Have fun. <laughs> no. And I mean, I like, it's a book that I always tell people when they're looking for, uh, especially queer stories to look at because you know as I said before there's not a lot of queer non-westernized stories out there being told and I I mean it needs to be that uh, marriage does but also blue skin gods does too um and I mean congrats for getting having two books coming out within what four months of each five months (laughs) I think four I wow (laughs) like how does that feel do you are you like do you feel exhausted? Like I could only imagine. I mean, I feel kind of exhausted from like promo stuff, yeah. but um, it, but it's very exciting, and I'm really I oh. I, I remind myself <laughs> how lucky I am to be here. <laughs> so um, so it's been really really good. I I I hope that people like Dominant Jeans. It's the first time I've published my um, poetry in any mm-hmm. sort of collection I've published in a few journals but um yeah I don't I I am still kind of terrified <laughs> of saying that I write poetry so I hope no. I hope that um people like it I I mean I don't know how they couldn't I mean one thing I loved about it was that it's felt so accessible or I feel like um poetry I am also 
not the best with poetry sometimes. I I try my hardest. I do everything I can, but I'm not the best at it. And I feel like more people need to, you know, more poetry, more poetry deficient people need to come out and be out and proud because it's that's the because that hey we exist um but no when i, I remember reading yours and speak the for one of the first feelings i had was like oh i get this i feel the emotion and i feel the i feel my own story connecting with this story with yours narrative in it in a way that i felt very seen and was able to seen and able to access in a really powerful way so I I mean I don't I get I understand your worry with it but I think that you are going to find that there's going to be a big audience that will love and adore dominant genes um I'm just listeners I'm just going to say that this is just me this is going to be me just just empowering Sindhu so much because I just want you to I I I mean your work has just had a, such a hold over me for so long um and I mean if you don't mind us talking about blue skin gods for a little bit since it also mm-hmm. just came out and you know there's I feel like you know the intersection between dominant genes and blue skin gods there's I feel like in a lot of ways dominant genes was not a follow-up to blue skin gods but like a companion in a lot of ways mm-hmm. where I felt them hand in hand together. Um, but um, how, I mean, for Blue Skin Gods to just come out too, how have you found like the the weight of that, you know, in terms of like religion, especially, because that's one of the biggest subjects in blue skin gods how do you feel that weight of you know it's it's a big weight it's i'm like Mm -hmm. even trying to come up with words for it because how do you describe the weight of religion right but like you know putting that in your book and putting that in such like an important way in your book how do you feel now um i i went back and forth when i was writing the book and i uh about you know how harsh to be with my critique and Mm -hmm. it eventually I decided that I did not want the book to completely come off as a secular critique of organized Mm -hmm. religion and that's it right Mm -hmm. I wanted to be complicated I wanted it to be complex and nuanced and Mm -hmm. and unable to be put into so many words right? right um and and I'm glad that I took that path that there are no easy answers um, in fact, there are very few answers that are given. There's just yeah. a lot of questions that are raised uh, that mm-hmm. I hope people will will come away with and and um, think through their own relationship with religion mm-hmm. on their own. Uh, there is a harsh critique of the sort of the spiritual industrial complex that yeah. has been infected by capitalism. Oh, that yeah. I feel very comfortable <laughs> being critical of. But I didn't want to also be critical of people's spirituality. So I was very like trying to walk that fine line. And I'm glad that I did um, Mm -hmm. because I think it ultimately made the book a lot more accessible to a lot more people um, and helped, um, you know, people think through some of their religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've heard from some readers who are, coming out of other kinds of fundamentalist religions, um, usually Christianity, but sometimes others that have connected with the book, even though the religions are very different and the cultures are very different, um, just because of this experience of of what it is to be completely indoctrinated in one thing and Mm -hmm. one faith, and then start to doubt it and start to lose that faith. Um, so it's 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 been amazing to see mm-hmm. that people have connected to it that aren't South Asian, that aren't um, you know uh, Hindu or mm-hmm. or raised in a Hindu environment, and um, and I'm really you know really grateful. Uh, it's it's been I don't know it's been a it's been a wild ride <laughs> so far. Um, mm-hmm. To just it was just the the attention Blue Skin Gods has gotten so far has been was unexpected and I 
I'm I'm really grateful for um, for all of it. And and I don't know why it happened or how it happened, but um, I'm really glad that it did and that um, the book seemed to reach a wider audience than um, than I had planned on, honestly. Well, I mean, I feel like it was a story I haven't heard before. In the what a I I went to it surprised <laughs> when I read the synopsis for the first time because I was like this is it feels like such a turn from Marriage of a Thousand Lies in a fan in a like a this fantastical um very specific cultural way where I mean Marriage of a Thousand Lies is specific in a, about a specific culture but also about like the Americanized version of like you know mm-hmm. the culture too or westernized uh version where this i was like this is feels more rooted in you know the specific culture but then i read it and i was like no this is this is i could see uh the marriage of a thousand lies uh world in this too because it's mm-hmm. so it's such it's about kind of you know family and the expectations put on it and you know the sacrifice one makes for that um and I mean it just and I you were saying that like you didn't want to like have this harsh critique on uh secular religion and I feel like when I was reading it I didn't see any villains except for like the organized capitalistic religion there but like in the characters I feel like I didn't see villains as much as complicated characters how was it like you know, you kind of talked about it, but like towing that line for the characters of like make wanting to vilify, villainize, villainize, yeah, villainize these specific people versus, um, you know, giving them not redemption, but like complexity. I mean, I think, you know, I think a sort of rudimentary, and and this is gonna, I I teach creative writing, so this is gonna (laughs) sound like a lesson, but um, I really think like, you know, rudimentary understandings of creating complicated characters involve, especially villains, involves Mm -hmm. like giving a reason for the villainy, right? Like this Mm -hmm. backstory, that this this sad backstory that explains why they're so mean. Um, And I don't just don't think that's, true to life I think Mm -hmm. some people are just prone to meanness they're just some people and just because just like some people are prone to kindness Mm -hmm. um not that kindness can't be taught it can and Mm -hmm. I think it can be practiced but um but I think not everyone has a reason for for being you know for being a little uh jerky and that's okay but at the same time everyone is the hero of their own story and Mm -hmm you have to write your characters that way. Yeah. So even Kalki's father, who, who is arguably the villain of the tale, um, still thinks that he is doing the best thing for his son. Right. Um, as mean as he is sometimes, and as, as, as rigid as he is, he mm-hmm. still believes that he is doing the best thing for Kalki. And that's really, when it comes down to it, you know, when you approach a scene, I, that's that's just what I keep in mind always, that everybody thinks that they are the hero. And I mean, and I ask on the behalf of, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of newer writers who are, um, you know, of similar experience to you, who might, you know, still have that rage that, you know, you were talking about that you had when you were at the beginning of the Marriage of a Thousand Lies, who are trying to like, who are writing these characters and, you know, might want to put the rage into how Mm -hmm. they view these characters. How, I mean, time, I'm guessing is part of it, but like, how do you separate that from these characters? Do you have any, you know, wisdom to impart on that? Uh, I think fiction, like that, a large part of why I like writing fiction is because fictionalizing these characters allows you to have emotional distance from them. Because at some point, you have to grow to love each of your characters and whatever mm-hmm. you need to do to do that. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times, um, it's that you are spending far more time with the characters than the than the reader ever will that you are you know far more about the character than the reader ever will that you know so much backstory and so much 
um, depth about the character and only a little bit of that will peek through in the scene. Um, but the importance is that you know it and that you have developed this character and that you have fallen in love with them. And you really have to love every single one of your characters or else it's just not gonna work. Um, in Marriage of a Thousand Lies, I, I had a lot hard time loving the character of Nisha. And I had, it took many, many, many drafts before mm -hmm. I could really feel like I had grown to like or even love uh, Nisha's character. And at that, that's the point at which I think that complexity started to show through in the work. Um, before that, she was, she was not a likable character and she's still not, but, yeah. um, but I think now, like it took a long time for, for her complexity to show through. Um, and a lot of that's revision, you know, you just yeah. revise and revise and revise until you feel like you know your characters inside and out. And I mean, I, yeah, that's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not an easy <laughs> thing to do. And I mean, wow, have you, I, wow, I think you've just, I think you've accomplished so much um, in your character work there. So Congratulations. You did it. You did it. Thank You've you. done it. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> um, sadly, I only have time for one last question. But and this is a question I want to ask you just for me, just um, as a writer who've who's written, you know, two amazing novels and is putting out this um, wonderful book of uh, essays and poetry this hybrid collection and about to write a graphic novel, what is, how, how does it feel to be this, the writer you've become And like, you know, you look back and at all these years, how, like, how does it feel? It feels uh, both amazing and, and I feel really lucky. Um, but I also have to remind myself and my partner reminds me of this all the time is that I have worked hard to be here. It's, it's easy to sort of want to be humble and to throw out um, all of the hard work that we've gone through. But I think it's important, especially for marginalized writers to own that hard work, to, to own the fact that we have, we've basically clawed our way to this spot. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm working hard to be proud of myself instead of, you know, just, wanting to do better or what, you know, that's important too. But I, at this point, I'm, I'm trying to take time to rest and to uh, pause for moments of um, gratitude and also mm -hmm. just, just be happy that, um, that I've, I've made it this far. I, wow. I, great answer. That's a fantastic answer. Um <laughs> I just, I, I'm, this is everything I wanted it to be and more. Um, I, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for your work. I want to, on behalf of like so many people, the person who even recommended it to me, I remember they gave such a empowered and like joyous like recommendation about how much they loved it. So on behalf of that person, on behalf of myself, on behalf of the many others who felt some sort of, you know, connection and happiness that they got a story that, you know, is not normally told with an experience that they share. Thank you so much for writing those, these stories. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm thank sorry. you. <laughs> thank you so much for for championing my work and and for reading it with such care and generosity. Like that's it's, it's always, you know, there, we have a, a concept of an ideal reader in our heads mm -hmm. that's compassionate and, and, you know, um, loving, but we never know who's going to actually pick up the work. So it's good to, it's good to meet a reader who's, who's all of those things. So thank you. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. I like <laughs> getting a little emotional. <laughs> so sorry um no um thank you so much uh do you have anything you would like to say to our uh listeners the independent bookstore community and your even local bookstores yeah um thank you for all of the work you've done to to help my my writing become 
you know, reach readers. And, and I don't know if it would, it would have been po- even a little bit possible without indie bookstores. Indie bookstores are the lifeblood of our community and, and the champion of uh, writers like me um, that, you know, don't get to be in Barnes & Noble. So, so thank you for that and, and keep doing the good work. And I mean, from the other side, you're a writer like you is what makes it worth it. So thank you. Um, and thank you to all my listeners out there thank you so much for listening Um, SJ Sindhu you can buy her books uh, Marriage of a Thousand Lies Blue Skin Gods Um, as of now uh, Dominant Jeans will be for sale at the store you can see it on display at Skylight Books or just go to your local bookstore and have them buy it and then Shakti her graphic novels coming soon um, from Harper Collins. You, is there a release date on Shakti yet? Summer twenty twenty three. Summer twenty twenty three. You know where I'll be um, at my local bookstore getting a copy. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited, um, and I just I'm so excited for whatever work you come out in the future with. Um, and to my listeners, you have a great and beautiful rest of your day. And I will see you soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.